This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Woman's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Learn more at twu.edu health. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas and the National Fitness Campaign. $1 million in grant funding is available in your area from Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas and National Fitness Campaign. Find out more at nationalfitnesscampaign.com slash Texas. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tripcast for July 22nd, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News at the Texas Tribune. This week we are going to talk about the Uvalde Texas House Committee investigative report that came out on Sunday scrutinizing the police response to the mass shooting in May and the January 6th committees, how they have involved Texans and what the Texans' reactions have been. Joining us for this week is our uh, story editor, Dave Harmon, who has been leading our kind of Uvalde aftermath coverage. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And Eric Nugaboran, our DC fellow, who has been covering the January 6th committee hearings for us up in DC. Hey, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. All right, so we're talking about the Uvalde report first. It came out on Sunday. It was a highly anticipated report handled by a three-person committee appointed by the Texas House of Representatives. The report, I would say, in a lot of ways, kind of confirmed what much of us already knew about this uh, police response to the Uvalde shooting, but it gave us a lot of new details and and kind of validated a lot of the concerns that people have raised about that police response. Among the top lines, something that gained a lot of attention from uh, from people in the aftermath of that report was that it was a total of 376 law enforcement officers who descended upon the scene in that chaotic, uncoordinated response. Of course, the shooter, Salvador Ramos, holed himself up into a classroom with wounded children and teachers for more than 73 minutes, up to 77 minutes, um, before police breached that classroom and, 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 you know, fatally shot him. This has kind of continued the ongoing kind of criticism of that law enforcement response. Dave, you have read this report. What stood out to you the most about it? Um, you know, I, I agree with you that it it uh, didn't change our fundamental understanding of what happened. But I think what the committee did for the first time was give a very broad um, and very detailed timeline of, of what happened, starting with um, the, the really lackadaisical security uh, at the school prior to the shooting. So, um, I mean, to me, what jumped out was uh, a lot more detail about the procedures within the school itself um, that were routinely ignored, you know, like locking exterior doors. Um, and uh, in one case, the, the, the classroom where most of the shooting happened had a faulty lock that apparently everyone knew about, but no work order was ever uh, submitted to fix it. 
Um, the law enforcement response uh, is scrutinized in some detail. And what it does is um, spreads the blame out quite a bit. Initially, uh, I think a lot of the weight has fallen on the police chief for the school district, uh, Ardondo, and, and rightfully so. But as you pointed out, there were hundreds of officers from a lot of different agencies at the scene and they, uh, you know, they, they didn't act either. Um, and then finally, there's, there's a lot more information about the, um, the shooter himself and what, we, what, what the, the committee was able to find out about him in the, in the weeks and months leading up to the shooting, which is also quite disturbing. Yeah, for sure. I'll, let's talk about the um, the law enforcement response first. I mean, one of the big things that the investigators said they were certainly not they did certainly did not go easy on uh, on Chief Arredondo, the chief of the Uvalde Police, where a lot, as you said, of the blame has fallen before. And they really talked about the lack of a strong incident commander at that building, you know, and and really talked about different things that a strong incident commander might have done, including, you know clarifying how they should have been communicating given that uh, the um, uh, the radios were not working very well inside the building and you know coming up with a plan uh, telling officers to breach the door sooner um, making sure people had done things like check the lock of the door where, where the gunman was barricaded in it, it, it certainly I think did not let him off the hook but it also as you noted kind of made the point that there were a lot of other law enforcement officers on there, you know, um, more than 100 DPS officers, 149, I think was the number, 91 state police from deep, the Department of Public Safety, 25 Uvalde police officers, 16 sheriff's deputies. And, you know, I think it left a lot of you all just continuing to ask the question with that many people, as, as our reporter Zach Despert noted in the story, a garrison, you know, a group larger than the, the, the group that defended the Alamo in Texas. How could it possibly take that long to, to enter that building? Yeah, and that that is the question that I think is going to hang over the law enforcement response, you know, forever. Uh, you know, we're still trying to, to unpack that and figure out why other agencies that arrived later didn't recognize that someone needed to take command because under the active shooter plan that was in place, Chief Arradondo was supposed to be in charge. Uh, I think it became very clear to the arriving officers uh, that he was inside the school and was not in charge of command and control. Um, so that was the first failure that's received most of the attention. Uh, but I think it's obvious from this House report that there was another huge failure that, uh, that happened outside when those arriving law enforcement officers realized no one was in charge and saw the chaos and did not step in to, to take over um, and establish good communications between the officers inside the school and those outside the school. Because the ones outside were the ones learning about the 911 calls from students and teachers uh, that would have confirmed that they, there were still survivors in that classroom 
And this was still an active shooter situation, not a barricaded subject, uh, which is what Chief Arredondo said he assumed. Yeah, I mean, one of the most tragic things about this when you when you look at the the response is something that coincided with the release of the report, which was the report, which was that the Uvalde police released body cam footage from the seven seven of their police officers who were on the scene. And you see in that footage, we have a story up on our site about this today, where you know one of the officers was with that group of officers in the hallway when they were first kind of shot at by the shooter in those you know kind of vital early minutes of the shooting and they they kind of of course react with terror and back up as as you would expect when a gunman with a you know weapon of war essentially is firing at you but then you see them you know the the one one uvalde officer who who is hit by a piece of shrapnel and and is bleeding from the ear and is clearly in shock he goes back in and out of that hallway kind of amped up and scared and confused about what to do and he's saying we got to go in there he's saying it over and over again almost to no one in particular we got to go in there there's kids in there and you you hear that in the the radio response you know kind of throughout there people saying we need to go in there but no one kind of taking charge of the situation and, and, and going the next step of saying let's go in there and, and I think one point that was made in this, and you've made this point to me just individually, Dave, as well, is like one of the things here is this maybe is what happens when you give someone an AR-15, a weapon of war, right? And, and part of the, the challenge here is that there was a lot of danger there. And this, this, this gunman was heavily armed. They did not have, you know, the, the right kind of shields that would protect them from that kind of weapon, at least early in the scene. And, and that could possibly kind of explain part of, part of this response, right? That is what uh, Chief Arredondo testified to, was that he didn't feel like they had the proper equipment to confront uh, a gunman with a, you know, a military grade weapon. And, you know, much was made in the House report about when specific types of equipment showed up. Um, there was a particular type of ballistic shield that was rated for rifle fire. Um, and it took a while for that particular shield to, to make it to the school. Um, there was still a delay after that before um, the, the Border Patrol's tactical unit uh, went in and, and took out the gunman. Uh, the BORTAC unit. So, um, yeah, we, you know, you had an 18-year-old with uh, an AR-15 type rifle holding off a lot of armed law enforcement for, for a long time. Um, and, you know, at, everything seemed to be in place to, for Uvalde to be ready for this. You know, they had a school police force, they had an active shooter plan, they uh, had a chain of command laid out in that plan. You know, on paper, they seemed as ready as, as any school could be. But when, when that former student got into that classroom with that rifle, uh, all, all the plans kind of fell apart. 
You, you mentioned uh, earlier the, the school safety protocol, and, and, and as you mentioned, Uvalde was one of the schools, one of the relatively few schools that had a state school safety plan that was approved by the state, but there were also some lapses there. There was, um, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the app that, that was mentioned in the report and, and how that was kind of, might have factored into the response. Yeah, um, the school, not long before the shooting, the school uh, bought uh, an app called Raptor, which allowed staff through their cell phones or through a computer to sound an alert, you know, basically trigger a lockdown. Um, and what the report said was that when the principal was alerted that the shooter was on campus, she tried to activate that system. And because of Wi-Fi problems inside the school, she wasn't able to quickly do that. Um, and, and even when that was triggered, the, the committee found that a lot of times teachers, you know, they didn't have their phones with them or they didn't have their phones on because, you know, they're, they're in class teaching. Uh, other, other staffers uh, didn't have cell phones and had to access Raptor through, uh, you know, through laptops or computers. So they didn't get the warning. And the teacher who was in room 111, where most of the, the, the killing happened, uh, said that he did not receive that alert. Um, the other part of this is that uh, once that Raptor system was activated, they had dozens of alerts because of bailouts in the area. And a bailout is uh, when a, a, a coyote, a people smuggler, um, leads border patrol or police on a chase um, with a, you know, basically a load of undocumented immigrants and then either crashes or pulls over and lets the migrants scatter. Um, that's called a bailout. And then those are fairly common in Uvalde County. And each time one of those happened, it triggered the, uh, the Raptor system. Someone triggered the Raptor system um, to lock down the school. And that led to some complacency because the staff, you know, they, they assumed, okay, here's another bailout. Yeah, the, the stat cited in the report that since February, Uvalde ISD, a pretty small school district, had 47 secure or, or lockdown events. Um, you know, basically in a matter of three months, um, about 90% of those were bailouts. So, you know, it almost, it, it almost felt like a kind of boy who cried wolf situation is if you get these alerts so many times, eventually you're going to stop taking them as seriously as you might from the beginning. And, you know, right. just another kind of tragic, uh, you know, terrible, terrible thing about all this. And, and, you know, that was something that I kind of, was absorbing when I was reading the report too. what you're talking about at the school safety is there are a lot of things that went wrong there too. You mentioned the, the door to classroom 111 where the shooter entered and, and, and did most of his shooting, um, you know, had a faulty lock and that had been reported, but not repaired and all those kinds of things. And, you know, there are just a lot of things where the, 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 um, the procedures, the safety procedures were in place, but the super vigilance, as you might expect in an elementary school, you know, where, where these, you know, there's kids going to the bathroom, there's kids, you know, all, whenever you get that many kids together, it's just a bit of a chaotic uh, setting in general that, 
that, you know, a lot of those kind of safety procedures either lost their potency or kind of failed um, when, when the time came when they were needed most. The one other thing you talked about was the, the shooter's background and, and, and maybe the hints that he was giving on social media. This one was one I know you were particularly kind of moved and affected by. What stood out to you about kind of the messages he was sending prior to the shooting? Yeah, uh, you know, this, this report really paints a portrait of a kid who felt like an outcast uh, in elementary school, he was bullied because of a speech impediment. Um, he came from a poor family. He would wear the same clothes day after day and kids teased him about that. They teased him about his haircut. Um, and as he got older, um, you know, he started struggling in school. It doesn't seem like he really, he was flagged as at risk, but there's not much evidence that, that he got any help. Uh, for any of this. And as he got into high school, um, he started kind of taking a darker turn. Um, he was playing, you know, violent shooter video games. He was going on social media and talking about guns and a fascination with guns. He was verbally abusing and harassing other people. And he was dropping very obvious hints that he was planning something. He didn't outright say what he was planning, but uh, he dropped a lot of hints to a lot of people in a lot of different social media channels. Uh, and his behavior was um, alarming enough that other teenagers online nicknamed, nicknamed him school shooter uh, well before the shooting. And none of that apparently um, triggered the right warning to the right people at the right time. All right. Thanks, Dave. Let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. For more information, visit texas2036.org. And Chad Cantella has been providing excellent lobbying, political strategy, and business development support to clients for over 20 years. Learn more at teamcantella.com. So Thursday night, we had our, our final kind of regularly scheduled January 6th hearing. It was once again, a very dramatic one. We saw excerpts of President Donald Trump's address following the riots on January 6th, in which Trump you know, could be seen in these excerpts, you know, not wanting to say, for instance, that the election was over. We, we learned a little bit more about you know, what he was doing during that attack, watching it on TV, not kind of jumping in, taking efforts to um, stop it. And we learned about the fear in Vice President Mike Pence's social uh, um, secret service uh, detail in which members, you know, seemed to be so afraid that they were sending messages to loved ones in the aftermath. This wraps up, you know, a series of dramatic hearings in Washington, D.C. about this issue in which, you know, we learned some about Texans. Uh, Texans names were occasionally brought up and, you know, just a lot of kind of reflection among people in the media nationally about these events and what they mean about our country. Eric, you have been tracking these hearings and you've been tracking the response of Texans in Congress. I wanna talk a little bit about 
the response first, because I know you reached out to two members of Congress about this. What are you hearing from the Texas lawmakers now that we've seen this kind of case presented to the, 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 the people of the country? Yeah, so we reached out to every um, one of the House Republicans and Democrats um, to kind of get a sense of where what their main takeaways from the hearings were if they watched the hearings. Um, and virtually all of the House Republicans just did not res respond to our questions. Um, it kind of reflects the broader uh, picture that we're seeing in that Republicans are not focusing on these hearings. They may be saying behind the scenes how, um, how revelatory some of the testimony has been, but publicly they are really distancing themselves from these hearings. Um, a couple of the Texas delegation members have been vocal about their, their disapproval of the hearings. Um, Ronnie Jackson, for example, has called it a witch hunt committee. Um, but the, the general takeaway from Republicans is that this is not something that Americans care about. They, they refer to calls in their office about inflation. They don't think um, these hearings are something that should be prioritized at all. Democrats, on the other hand, have really capitalized on these hearings. Um, they say it is just further proof that former President Trump was, was the main instigator behind the January 6th attack. A couple of House Democrats that we reached out to said that he should be prosecuted by the Justice Department. So um, there's definitely a, a lot of uh, partisanship on display in terms of how Texans have been responding. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the few kind of folks who, you know, Texas Republicans who spoke out about this was Jeff Leach, a state representative, you know, not member of Congress. And he seemed particularly moved by the actions, you know, related to Mike Pence, who, who Leach said, quote, was Trump's incredibly effective. VP, fiercely loyal friend, and most faithful supporter. Leach basically says that was the moment for me. That is um, what he said, the nail in the coffin, and that basically Republicans need someone else running for president in 2024. I mean, basically what I'm hearing from you, though, Eric, is not necessarily a circling of the wagons in support of Trump or his actions on that day, but just maybe a desire to talk about something else like, say, inflation that, that doesn't really bode well for Democrats here. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They really just aren't talking about it publicly. Um, I think a lot of it is because it does not look politically great for Republicans right now, um, because the the evidence that they outlined was uh, pretty significant in how Trump and his allies really just planned this for, for some time after the election. And it, um, as shown in last night's hearing, he really did not act for hours uh, to tell riders to go home from the Capitol. Eric, what about just the substance of these these hearings? How did Texans come into play? Did, 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 what, what did we learn about Texans, if anything, in, in these hearings? Yeah, um, so the primary figure I would say who was mentioned in the hearings is Representative Louis, Louis Gohmert, who um, ran unsuccessfully for attorney general this year in Texas. And he was, testimony showed that he was one of the Republican members of Congress who asked for a pardon from former President Trump after the insurrection. He emphatically denied that, um, but he was also shown to be in a meeting in December 2020, along with another Texas Congressman, Brian Babin, who, uh, and the, that meeting consisted of a discussion with the White House officials on former Vice President Mike Pence's role on January 6th to possibly overturn the election results. 
Um, Gomert's name it wasn't a surprise to come up. Uh, his He had comments days before the insurrection that the Capitol Police flagged as potentially inciting violence. So it wasn't a surprise to hear his name, but we did hear more details about what exactly his role was. Um, there was also a couple of far right figures who are from Texas who were featured pretty prominently, especially in the most recent hearings. Alex Jones, the Texas-based conspiracy theorist, mm -hmm. was seen as one of the, the main uh, people encouraging people to march to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Ali Alexander, who is seen as the leader of the Stop the Steal mov movement, uh, was also seen as one of the, the leaders behind the, the rally on January 6th before the insurrection, as well as just being kind of on the inside of what was going to happen on January 6th. Um, and then the on the other side, kind of, there was an interesting revelation that uh, former Texas Congressman John Ratcliffe, who served as Trump's director of national intelligence, uh, actually was wary of these election false or stolen election claims after the election and that he urged uh, Trump staffers to not invest a lot of time in these claims. So those were kind of the main figures. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so what do you think? I mean, you've, you've sat and watched these hearings, um, you know, all, all, all the way through the uh, other people, you know, we, we see kind of a surge of interest when they're going on. I was, you know, looking on social media and it was, you know, uh, the, the intense subject of conversation briefly, but what impact do you think this has going long-term just in, in politics in Texas or politics across the country? Do you think these hearings have staying power? Do they change anything about the conversation around this going forward? I think I think they do have the potential to have staying power. Um, it's been just the just the sheer number of evidence and how it's been presented by the committee has really shown um, emphatically how involved Trump was in this um, on the day of and uh, just in the months leading up. I mean, the big question will be whether the Justice Department decides to prosecute uh, the former president. Um, and I also think it should be stressed that we're, these hearings are not over. Uh, the initial plan was to have a final report released in September, but the committee keeps getting new evidence. They keep conducting interviews with witnesses. So um, the only hard deadline as of now is January 3rd of next year, because that's the start of the new Congress where Republicans are supposed to take over the House, which would mean this committee would be disbanded. So that's kind of the date that uh, the committee members are eyeing right now, and the final report may not be released until December. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Dave. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas Women's University, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, and National Fitness Campaign, Texas 2036, and Chad Cantella. We'll talk to you all next week. Join us September 22nd through the 24th at TribFest 2022. Hear from Glenn Youngkin, Judy Woodruff, Manu Kator, and more. Over three days of can't-miss conversations. Learn more and buy tickets at TribFest.org.